Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for the Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members to sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Dr. Jordan Burdine, and I am a clinical pharmacy practice specialist in pediatrics and neonatology at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas. And today I will be your host for this episode. With me today is Dr. Olivia Linden, who is a PGY2 pediatric pharmacy resident at Monroe Carroll Jr.'s Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee. Thanks for joining us today, Olivia. Let's get into today's topic of vaping in pediatrics. The first question we're going to address is what are e-cigarettes and vaping pens? So e-cigarettes and vape pens are just battery-operated devices used to inhale an aerosol typically containing nicotine, flavorings including mint, fruit flavors, cucumber, bubble gum, as well as tobacco and menthol. Lastly, they can also contain chemicals such as THC. They come in a variety of shapes and sizes. They can look like regular cigarettes, cigars, or pipes, as well as look like pens, USB sticks or tanks. Regardless of the shape, they all consist of four primary components. The cartridge or reservoir, which contains e-liquid or e-juice, which can be replaced for certain brands of vape pens or come as part of the vape pen for others. Then you have the heating element or the atomizer, the power source and the mouthpiece. Puffing on the mouthpiece of the device will activate the battery powered heating device, which vaporizes the cartridge liquid to then be inhaled. There are many different e-cigarette brands currently on the market, but most people are probably familiar with Juul Pods, which came at the peak of the Valley crisis. Juul first hit the market in 2015 and contained significantly higher levels of nicotine than other e-cigarettes on the market. By 2018, Juul controlled around 75% of the e-cigarette market, with just a few other brands like Blue controlling the remainder of the market. Juul has lost a bit of its market share and in 2021 did drop to around 50% of the reusable vape pen market. On the other hand, a new company has risen in popularity, which is Puff Bar. This is specifically marketed as a disposable device and accounts for around 50% of the disposable vape pen market now. Some of these disposable brands have become popular based on loopholes in previous bands that only targeted refillable devices. Great, thank you. Can you explain a bit more about what is in an e-cigarette aerosol? Sure. So an e-cigarette aerosol contains around 50 ultrafine particles that are inhaled deep into the lung. Overall, it's very difficult for consumers to know exactly what's in their e-cigarette products. This is just mostly due to a lack of consistency across various brands. Some e-cigarettes marketed as containing 0% nicotine have actually been found to contain some nicotine. In addition, Juul Pods have been found to contain as much nicotine as a pack of 20 regular cigarettes, which individuals may use easily in a single day. Juul, as well as many of the new brands, also utilize nicotine salts, which allow particularly high levels of nicotine to be inhaled more easily with less irritation than free-based nicotine used in older products and cigarettes. Beyond just nicotine, e-cigarette flavorings were found to contain diacetyl, which the FDA considers generally safe for consumption, but frequent inhalation has been linked to serious lung disease. In addition, analyses of aerosols have found volatile organic compounds, including benzene, and heavy metals, including nickel, tin, and lead. Overall, though, e-cigarettes are generally considered less harmful than regular cigarettes, which contain a number of carcinogenic compounds in comparison. However, due to the lack of manufacturing consistency and regulations, 
e-cigarettes are still not safe. Very interesting. So what would you say the prevalence of vaping is among pediatric patients? So in 2020, it was reported that 19.6% of high school students and even 4.7% of middle school students used e-cigarettes, which has decreased from earlier 2019 numbers that reported use in 27.5% of high school students and 10.5% of middle school students. A lot of this drop in use is likely the result of national campaigns that have increased awareness of the risks of use, in addition to several laws that have attempted to curb use in our pediatric population. However, despite this decrease, it has been noted that 15 to 17 year olds have more than 16 times greater odds of use to be a current e-cigarette user compared to adults. Youth users cite flavors as a top reason as to why they began using e-cigarettes behind family or friend use. In 2020, it was noted that 82.9% of youth e-cigarette users specifically utilized flavored products, with the most common flavor being a fruit flavor at 73.1%, followed by mint at 55.8%, and menthol at 37%. Besides the flavors and peer pressure, many young people just aren't aware that a lot of these products like Juul contain nicotine. There was a survey released in 2019 by the Truth Initiative that showed nearly two-thirds of Juul users between the ages of 15 and 21 did not know the product contained nicotine. But like I had mentioned before, we have seen a decrease in use since e-cigarettes steadily became popular from 2017 to 2019, which has been in part due to new regulations, although some of these have just shifted the type of product use. One of the specific regulations that may have helped was the change in the federal minimal age for sale of tobacco products from 15 to 21, known as Tobacco 21 legislation that occurred in December of 2019. However, this could still be bypassed as many adolescents were still able to buy products online with only minimal requests for verification of age, or they were able to get them from family or friends. Another important policy that came out in December of 2019 from the FDA was one that attempted to essentially ban all flavors except for tobacco and menthol in cartridge or pod-based e-cigarettes. One loophole in this ban, though, was that it did not cover disposable e-cigarettes, so products like Puff Bar that are disposable still have flavored products on the market. Use of these products has increased by nearly 1,000% among high school e-cigarette users in 2020 as a result. So since we still are seeing use in pediatric patients, what are the risks associated with e-cigarettes or the e-cigarette use that the audience should be aware of? Yeah, so there are several risks that are associated with e-cigarette use, many of which are similar to regular cigarette use, showing that e-cigarettes and vape pens are still very much harmful, despite, again, the general perception that they are safe. The first risk is nicotine addiction. Due to the flavorings, it's often easy for users, including pediatric users, to utilize a single cartridge in one day which can contain the same amount of nicotine as an entire pack of cigarettes for certain brands. In addition, irreversible lung and cardiovascular damage and disease can also occur due to aldehydes and acrolin found in e-cigarettes. Acrolin has specifically been associated with acute lung injury, COPD, asthma, and lung cancer. If a patient has pre-existing asthma or COPD, use can also significantly worsen patient symptoms of cough and wheezing, leading to increased hospitalizations and changes in inhaled medications. Finally, e-cigarette use can lead to the most well-known disease association of a valley, which stands for e-cigarette or vaping product use associated lung injury. Wow, that's a lot of potential risk. You mentioned Evale. Can you explain a little bit in, more in detail what this is? Yeah, so Evale again stands for e-cigarette or vaping product use associated lung injury. It's definitely a mouthful. It was actually previously known, though, as vaping-associated pulmonary illness, or VAPI, prior to being recognized in August of 2019 
by the CDC, FDA, and state and local health departments following a multi-state outbreak of severe lung disease that occurred in otherwise healthy individuals. The one common factor found in all of these patients was that they all utilized e-cigarettes or vape pens. Within two months of this noted outbreak, though, 39 states had reported 1,299 cases to the CDC with 26 deaths. The incidence of a valley, though, did drastically peak in August and September of 2019, and then gradually declined with time as a result of increased public awareness, removal of vitamin E acetate from some products, and the law enforcement actions related to controlling use. As of February 18, 2020, 2,807 hospitalized Evali cases or deaths were reported to the CDC across 50 states. Characteristics of these hospitalized patients included a majority being male at 66%, with a median age of 24 years, although the age ranged anywhere from 13 to 85 years. A significant number were pediatric patients, with 15% of cases being under 18 years of age. It was noted that 82% of patients reported using THC products overall, with only 16% reporting acquiring products from commercial sources, like recreational or medical dispensaries or vape or smoke shops, which are often safer with a better idea of what these products contain. The large majority instead obtained products from family and friends, dealers, online, or from other sources. In addition, 57% of users reported using nicotine-containing products, with 69% reporting acquiring products from commercial sources. Is there a substance in e-cigarettes that was linked to Evalue? There has been one substance that has been linked. So vitamin E acetate is an additive in some THC-containing e-cigarette products that has been very strongly linked to the Avali outbreak and has been used as a cutting and thickening agent to dilute THC oil in vape cartridges. In addition, it's reported to enhance the quality and appearance as well as the aroma and taste. Outside of cartridges, though, it's commonly found in many foods such as vegetable oils, cereals, and fruits, and is also available as a dietary supplement safe for consumption. However, when heated and inhaled, it appears to lead to lung disease, although the exact mechanism has never been found. From 2019 to 2020, the FDA though tested 843 samples of e-cigarette cartridge liquid that had been associated with patients diagnosed with Evali that had been sent from consumers, hospitals, and health departments. The FDA had not found one product or substance that was involved in all of the cases, but did determine that THC was present in most samples being tested with 511 of the 843 samples containing THC. Of these 511 samples containing THC, 50% of products were found to contain vitamin E acetate with concentrations ranging from 23 to 88%. However, in addition, 29% of products also contained another diluent such as medium chain triglycerides, so a definitive link hadn't been established. The FDA then further did a subgroup analysis of samples associated directly to 93 patients with CDC case numbers. They found that 73% of the 93 patients were connected to products containing THC, similar to their earlier analysis. Of the patients connected to THC products, 81% utilized products with vitamin E acetate, which provides a much stronger association than the earlier analysis. In addition, 32% of these patients utilize products with aliphatic esters, including triglycerides, and 9% utilize products containing polyethylene glycol as a diluent. Overall, what complicates the picture is that the large majority of these patients did not exclusively utilize a single product, making it difficult to still pinpoint the exact cause.
There was another study that was conducted by Blunt and colleagues that was in the New England Journal of Medicine that expanded the search for a cause by analyzing bronchoalveolar lavage fluid from 51 hospitalized patients with confirmed eValley diagnosis across 16 states. These patients had a median age of 23 years with a range of 16 to 67 years. Of these patients, 26% self-reported using THC products alone and 51% reported using both nicotine and THC products. They compared these samples to samples obtained from 99 healthy participants that included never smokers, exclusive nicotine-containing e-cigarette users, and exclusive cigarette smokers. Results of the BAL fluid evaluation strongly link vitamin E acetate to eValley even more than the FDA analysis. Vitamin E acetate was detected in samples from 94% of patients in the eValley group compared to no patients in the comparator group. They tested for several different additional compounds and only one patient had detectable levels of coconut oil along with vitamin E acetate, as well as one patient who had a sample containing limonene, which is a diluent terpene, but no vitamin E found. No other toxicants were found in either the Avali or comparative group, strongly linking vitamin E acetate to this outbreak. Now, I'm sure what all of our audience members want to know is if they had a patient present with Evali, what would be the signs and symptoms they should look for and how is it diagnosed? So unfortunately, Evali is considered a diagnosis of exclusion with no specific test or marker available for diagnosis. Patient history is important to link e-cigarette use to symptoms since they are nonspecific and present similar to other respiratory illnesses. Respiratory symptoms have been noted in 95% of patients diagnosed with eValley, which includes shortness of breath, cough, chest pain, and tachypnea. 57% of patients have also been noted to have oxygen saturations less than 95% while breathing room air, and respiratory failure as a result has led to ICU admissions in 47% of patients diagnosed with eValley. In addition, GI symptoms are a common occurrence in 77% of patients with symptoms such as diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. Most of these do precede respiratory symptoms in several patients. Lastly, symptoms of fever, chills, tachycardia, and weight loss have been noted in 85% of patients. With eValley, though, being a diagnosis of exclusion, there are several requirements that must be met in order to meet the confirmed case definition by the CDC. The first is the patient must have used an e-cigarette within 90 days of symptom onset. In addition, they must have pulmonary infiltrates, such as opacities on a chest x-ray or ground glass opacities on chest CT. They must also show absence of pulmonary infection on initial workup with minimum criteria of a negative respiratory viral panel negative influenza PCR or rapid test if local epidemiology supports testing, and all other clinically indicated respiratory infection disease tests also being negative. This could include negative sputum cultures, negative BAL cultures, blood cultures, as well as tests for any opportunistic respiratory infections if necessary. Lastly, there must be no evidence of an alternative diagnosis, again, because this is a diagnosis of exclusion. Of note, there is also a case definition for probable eValley, with the difference being that there was an identified viral or bacterial organism that could be contributing to symptoms, but is not the sole cause of the underlying injury. Thanks, Livia. Can you review what the management of eValley looks like in the inpatient and outpatient settings for the audience? Sure. So some patients with a history of e-cigarette use that fit the picture for eValley with respiratory, GI, and constitutional symptoms can be candidates for outpatient management. In order to be managed in an outpatient setting, 
Patients should have normal oxygen saturations, maintaining oxygen sats of 95% or greater on room air, have no respiratory distress, no comorbidities that might compromise pulmonary function, such as asthma, have a reliable access to care, as well as the ability to follow up within 24 to 48 hours of initial evaluation in case respiratory symptoms worsen, as some patients have initially presented with mild symptoms that then rapidly worsen within 48 hours. One thing that is important to consider for outpatient management is the need for close follow-up. There was a report in 2020 in the New England Journal of Medicine by Layden and colleagues that described 98 patients with Evali in Wisconsin and Illinois. They noted that 66% of hospitalized patients have been seen in the outpatient setting prior to admission. Of these patients, 45% had received antibiotics for presumed respiratory tract infection with all of these patients then further progressing, requiring hospital admission. So we can really see the rapid decline of these patients without proper treatment. In terms of inpatient treatment, corticosteroids are the mainstay of treatment for hospitalized patients with Evali in order to blunt the inflammatory response associated with the injury. They're considered potentially useful in hospitalized patients based on case reports and series showing improvement. Use in the outpatient setting, though, has been cautioned as any literature is severely lacking. In addition, patients who have not received corticosteroids have also had clinical improvement, so use may be considered but may not be necessary. Because of the lack of formal efficacy studies, though, there is no standardization for the specific glucocorticoid to use or for dosing strategies. For small studies, it seems most patients receive IV high-dose steroids, especially if they're intubated or at least similar dosing to that required for an asthma exacerbation, with steroid tapers continued on discharge, although again, there are really no formal recommendations. Antimicrobial treatment for community-acquired pneumonia should be strongly considered, in addition due to the significant overlap of signs and symptoms. Lastly, strong recommendations should be made to discuss discontinuation of e-cigarette products with patients. When considering some of the reports that have been published, we can go back to that report by Layden and colleagues of the 98 patients in Wisconsin and Illinois, of which 26% were patients less than 18 years of age. 93 of the 98 patients required hospitalization, with 84% receiving glucocorticoids, although the specific steroids are not reported. The large majority, though, were administered IV with a minimum duration of seven days for most patients. In addition, 92% of patients received antibiotics for a lower respiratory tract infection. Most patients were noted to improve during admission, with 51% of patients having some sort of documentation noting clinical improvement with the use of glucocorticoids. Overall, the median duration of hospitalization was six days with a range of one to 72 days, showing most patients can rapidly improve. Another case series by Davidson and colleagues in 2019 describes five adult patients identified at two hospitals in North Carolina during July and August of 2019 with potentially valley. All five patients were admitted to the hospital with three requiring ICU admission and one patient requiring intubation and mechanical ventilation. Initially on admission, empiric antibiotics were started in all five patients for presumed community-acquired pneumonia. All five patients, though, developed worsening respiratory failure within 48 hours of admission, which led to initiation of IV methylprednisolone, with doses noted as being ranged from 120 to 500 milligrams daily. No information was given as to the duration of hospitalization or the duration of the IV steroids, but all five patients were eventually discharged home with an oral prednisone taper. Olivia, earlier you discussed the prevalence of pediatric patients currently vaping. 
Can you now discuss what is the prevalence of pediatric patients who are looking to quit vaping? Sure. So there was a recent study that came out in pediatrics in 2021 by dying colleagues that looked at the prevalence and factors associated with youth vaping cessation, with most users being between the ages of 11 and 18 years. They found that in 2020, 53.4% of current users reported an intention to quit, while 67.4% reported having tried to quit vaping. They found females actually had a statistically lower prevalence of intention to quit compared to males, as well as those who use a modifiable system compared to our disposable e-cigarettes, like those made by Puff Bar or those with a refillable cartridge like Juul products. In addition, those who use both tobacco products with e-cigarettes had a lower prevalence of intention to quit. On the other hand, it was noted that users who started vaping as a result of curiosity and users who note products can result in some harm or a lot of harm had significantly increased prevalence of intention to quit. The average number of past year quit attempts was 5.3 in this study, which shows the addicting qualities of e-cigarettes, as well as just how difficult it can be to quit. Unfortunately, these products used for smoking cessation in adults, like nicotine gum, lozenges, or patches, as well as prescription products are not FDA approved in pediatrics, although there are studies looking at use in adolescent populations. Unfortunately, we won't have time to get into those today as they could be a whole nother topic. At our institution though, we have utilized both nicotine patches as well as the gum in some of our teenage patients. Now we all know that COVID-19 has taken the world by storm. How has vaping impacted the risk of COVID-19 in pediatric patients? So in February of 2020, the CDC stopped updates on Evali as cases steadily declined and the COVID-19 pandemic emerged. Following concerns about the convergence of vaping and its effects on COVID-19 infection, which includes the overlap of symptoms, a population-based study by Gaia and colleagues in the Journal of Adolescent Health aimed to highlight the association between the two. The study surveyed 4,351 adolescents and young adults between the ages of 13 and 24 years. They found that compared to non-users, the risk of COVID-19 was five times more likely in e-cigarette users and seven times more likely in dual e-cigarette and traditional cigarette users. Of note, the study did even adjust for several compounders, including age, sex, and obesity, as well as geographic location in relation to the number of overall COVID cases. A number of potential reasons were considered as to why e-cigarette users were at increased risk. With increased nicotine and chemical exposure, lung function can be severely altered, which increases infection risk. In addition, we know COVID-19 can spread by frequent touching of hands to face, so infection may spread with frequent use of cigarettes and e-cigarettes, as users are placing their hands near their face with each puff. Finally, sharing devices is also a common practice among adolescents with e-cigarettes and can cause additional spread of infection. Thank you, Livia, for joining us for today's episode of Therapeutic Thursdays and reviewing vaping in pediatrics. This was very informational and relevant to pediatric practice. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's Pediatric Resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings in the Pediatric Resource Center, including disease-specific articles and guidelines, webinars, and links for education and training. Thanks again for tuning in for this session and joining us here every Thursday, where we will be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcast through your favorite podcasting provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official. 
the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.